Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. So if you have your Bibles, um, go ahead and turn over to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And we're going to be looking at verses 28 through 44. Palm Sunday. Do you guys know what Palm Sunday is all about? For sure, right? Like we talk about it every year. So I wanted to approach it a little bit different this year so that we get a fresh perspective of what happened on Palm Sunday. And we're going to get to the text in just a little bit, but I want to pray first that God would just open our eyes to what he wants to show us today in his word. God, we, we humble ourselves as we come into your presence in this place this morning. We ask that you would speak to us in a fresh way, that we would see you as the sovereign king of not only our lives, but the entire universe, Lord. You've brought us peace through the cross of Christ. So we just ask, Lord, that we would hear from the Spirit today what you would have to say for our lives, how we can order the details of our lives to better glorify you. We ask that you would reveal to us yourself, Jesus, today. The Spirit would fall, and that we would see you in this the most beautiful, grand way, that you're the perfect king. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, the first thing I wanted to do this morning is to start by asking a question, right? That we can keep before us, think about throughout our time together. And the question is simply this. Is Jesus the king of your life? Is Jesus the king of your life? Like, do you, do you command the details of your life, or does Jesus? And what I don't want this question to do is be cliche, because the text that we're looking at shows Jesus as nothing less than a completely sovereign king who is over every detail of his coronation. And so what I want to ask us today, as we go into the text, is, is Jesus the king of your life? Is he the king of your finances, the king of your time, the king of your relationships, the way you do your taxes, the way you interact with people? Like, there's a big, um, it's a big deal for Jesus, the Lord, over our lives in a way that we submit to everything that he would have for us. Because the reality is, if, if we believe the book that we're holding in our hand this morning, that's like one of those unescapable realities that Jesus is the king from cover to cover, like one place says he's the Lord of Lords, right? He's a king over all kings. And so with us, I think there's always a subtle danger. I think we can agree that that knowing Jesus is the king versus allowing him to be the king are two vastly different things, right? Like we can agree that knowing Jesus is king and allowing him to to navigate and control the details of our lives are, are two different things. And so we're kind of at a disadvantage because this whole idea of kingship is kind of lost on us, because modern governance are not designed in, in terms of, of a sovereign king, right? Like imagine a sovereign king over the United States. Like that would be a scary thing, someone with unfettered power. And so we have layers and layers and layers of checks and balances to pre- prevent anybody from having too much control. And it's bureaucratic, and it's complicated, and we get all wrapped up in it, but but in the day, like, man, kings, kings were completely sovereign. Like what the king says goes. And so the citizens of that kingdom 
would revere that king. They would give allegiance to that king. And, and I say all that because the text that we're looking at today is literally nothing less than Jesus being presented to Israel as the true and perfect king, which has massive implications for each of our lives. And just to kind of set the tone for Palm Sunday, because we have been studying through the Gospels recently, it's interesting because up to this moment of Palm Sunday in Jesus' life, it's been very on the, on the down low, right? Like he deflects the fame, he deflects the attention, all the praise until this like God-ordained specific moment. Like everything's on the, have you ever been reading through the Gospels and you come across those awkward texts where Jesus like radically heals somebody and he pulls them aside and says, don't tell anybody about that? Like I always like, why Jesus, why are you doing that? Like, like he just healed a guy with leprosy, like your arm's falling off, right? He heals that thing and pulls you aside and says, go tell the priest, but don't you tell anybody else. Like that's kind of strange. Or Jarius, his daughter's dead and now he revives her and she's alive and he's like, don't tell anybody. Or the guy that was blind. In Matthew's gospel, he, uh, he healed him. And then the Matthew's gospel says that he sternly warned the guy not to tell anybody. Or Peter, when he said, you're the Christ. Like, you're, I'm going to build my church through you. And he, he goes through all these things, like, I'm going to give you the kingdom of God and blah, blah, blah. And then he says, but don't tell anybody. And commentators often call this the messianic secret. But towards the end of the gospels, up to this point of Palm Sunday, like, the secret is out. Like, nobody can keep a secret in ancient Israel, right? Like, kind of like today, right? Like, no one's keeping any secrets. I mean, not to mention, if your buddy Ed was blind and you catch him shooting hoops at the park, like, you know, like, something's different about Ed, right? And so everybody knows, like, there's something special happening through this Jesus guy over the last few years. And so the context of Palm Sunday with, with the Passover quickly approaching, which was a required feast for the people of God, so you have thousands and thousands of people packing into Jerusalem and the surrounding area all to celebrate and make sacrifice. But this year, of all the years, it's a little different because there's this extra sense of holy anticipation in the air because everyone's got the same question. Everyone's wondering the same thing. Is Jesus going to show up? And we get we a glimpse of that in John where he says this. He says, they, they kept looking for Jesus but they stood around in the temple, and they said to each other, what do you think? He won't come for Passover, will he? So there's all this tension building because the religious leaders hate Jesus. Everybody's praising Jesus. And it's like these two unexpected things are coming together finally with this backdrop of tension. And because this is a God-ordained moment, Jesus sets the story into motion. And we'll start in verse 28 and go to verse 35 to start. And he had said these things. We're going to come back to that at the end, what he said, because that's where we're going to go with application. He was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat and tie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, his owner said, what are you doing with the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And so they brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And so I like to put myself in the Bible, right? Like you have to, you have to feel the text, right? Like you are a disciple of Jesus. And he says, go up to Pupakea. There's going to be a donkey. 
and this particular address and going to be tied up in so-and-so's backyard. I want you to go up there and get that donkey. And lo and behold, there's the donkey in uncle so-and-so's backyard. And you untie it, and then you remember that Jesus said, didn't he say uncle's going to come yell at me? And then as you're walking away, this guy yells at you, where are you going with the colt? And then you say, the Lord has need of it. And then you get the colt. And I don't know, I've tried that at home with different things, you know, with chores and dishes. But, it's, but this is like a God-ordained prophetic picture. Like, like trip out on the fact that this is a prophetically, divinely, sovereignly placed donkey. Right? Like God put this donkey here for this purpose. And I don't know, it's, it's kind of funny how God has this thing where he likes to use donkeys to accomplish his purposes. And there's a guy in the first service that always reminds me of that. Um, if you don't get that, maybe it'll come to you later. Um, but if God can use a donkey, he can use anybody, right? That's the point I'm trying to make there. But it's all about prophetic. It's a, it's a prophetic thing. So 500 years before this moment happened, this guy named Zechariah said that this exact moment would happen. And so the context of that is, is Zechariah was speaking to the people of Israel who were returning from a Babylon exile. And if you know anything about exiles in the ancient world, it's not a pretty picture. And so in the book of Zechariah, we have this picture of this completely broken people trying to piece back their lives together. They're trying to put the temple back together because they had experience, and this is important, they had experienced failed king after failed king after failed king. I encourage you to read through First and Second Kings and see of all the knucklehead kings that God has tried to use in the past. And so Zechariah, knowing all that, God gives him an utterance, and he stands in the gap, and he gives the people of God a glimpse of the future about a new king. And it says Zechariah in Zechariah 9.9, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph. O daughter of Jerusalem. He's saying, be very happy. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so we have to feel and understand what he's saying in their context. He's saying, like, as your life is destroyed, he's saying, like, it's not always going to be this way. There's going to be a new kind of king who would not only never fail his people, but he continues in verse 10, And he says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off. And notice this, and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so he's saying God's got a bigger plan than this little chunk in Israel. He's saying this God's not going to be just sovereign over this little piece of land, but the entire earth. And so The significance of the donkey is actually not random at all because it shows us at least two really important things. And it's just funny as I step back from this and think about we're talking about a historical donkey in time. That's what God's word does. But the first thing that this donkey communicates is that God is bringing peace. He's bringing peace. Because the picture is when when a king rode in on a donkey, it was a picture of peace. And to put that in context, in Revelation chapter 19, we see this radically different picture of Jesus, where he's not riding a donkey, but a white horse during his second coming. And I was kind of reflecting on some of that imagery this week, and to be honest with you, it's like some of the scariest stuff you read in the Bible. Like, you can't imagine this is the same Jesus. And we read in this chapter where Jesus is not bringing peace, but it says that he's coming to make war. 
and judge, and his eyes are like fire, and his robe is dipped in blood, and out of his mouth comes a sharp sword that he uses to strike down the nations, and on and on it goes. You want a nightmare? Like, that's a picture for you to imagine. And to put that into context, we're talking about Jesus riding it on a donkey. So he's showing this is a picture of peace. Like God's coming back. We exist in the space between the donkey and the white horse. But he's saying, in this moment, I'm bringing peace. And you'll notice that it's not just any donkey, right? It's a literally an unridden young donkey, which brings up the second point that God is communicating, that he's not only bringing peace, but he is the sovereign king who is in control of everything that's going to happen in the situation. And I don't personally know a lot about donkeys, except for what I looked on Wikipedia this week, but I do know that no human being just jumps on an unridden colt, right? Unless you're literally at a rodeo. Because later in the text, which we're going to read, there's thousands of people worshiping their faces off, throwing palm branches and coats in front of the animal. And the text in the Bible never seems to indicate that Jesus rode down the Mount of Olives like rodeo style. Like he is in control of this entire thing. And so what we can't miss this morning is God is intentionally revealing to the people that this is my sovereign king who, who brings peace. And so he's not only in every detail control of Palm Sunday, but he's sovereign over the nations. And it's really important for them to grab a hold of this imagery that he's showing them in this moment. Because later in Passion Week, it's going to look like Jesus is anything but in control, right? Because we know the end of the story. He doesn't get a throne, right? He gets, he gets a cross. And so God is showing them from the beginning, like, I am in control of what's going to happen from this moment to the moment I'm hanging on the cross. He's communicating, I'm not only bringing you peace, but I'm the sovereign king who is in control of every detail. And so when the crowd saw Jesus riding into Jerusalem, knowing his messianic track record, and seeing the imagery that he's showing them, they knew, the people of God knew, like something very special was unfolding right before their eyes. So we'll pick it up in 36. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd and the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And so, gosh, it's really hard to, to feel the magnitude of what's happening in this text. But there's no doubt that the atmosphere was absolutely electric. Because Matthew's gospel actually mentions that the whole city was stirred. And so you have this incredible tension building and building because they believe Jesus is riding in as the Messiah King who's going to alleviate them from the oppression of Rome. Like they believe Jesus was taking them back to the glory days of Israel, right? So this is like a crucial moment that they had been waiting for because we have to remember, like the significance of all of this is extremely important because the Passover was all about deliverance in its original context. Passover was all about God um, delivering the people of, uh, people of God from Egypt. So it harkens back to Exodus when God liberated his people from Egypt. So they have that in the backdrop of their mind, seeing Jesus. And we get a sense of this by, by what they were proclaiming, because there's no doubt 
in anybody's mind at this moment, they're, they're declaring that Jesus is king by laying their coats down and taking the palm branches off the trees. Like, you don't, you don't take off your coat and lay it for a donkey to trample over and start ripping palm trees off of uh, the trees, you know, like palm branches off the trees, unless there's like a real coronation for a real deal king, right? Like the imagery is all here. And we see a picture of that back in 2 Kings where this guy named Jehu was actually um, coronated as a king, and they took their their coats off, and they laid it before him, saying, you're the king. And the palm branches was a, was a picture of victory. It was a nationalism. They viewed Jesus as a conquering king. But notice also in verse 38, they explicitly say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And Mark's gospel gives us more detail and mentions they were shouting, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And Hosanna literally means anybody? This is the audience participation point. What is it? Save us now, right? Don't you hate it when pastors or preachers do that? They ask you guys a question. I hate it. And I just did it. I don't know why. Maybe it's just something that happens to your brain when you get up here. Because you want it to be a dialogue. But this is a monologue, and I apologize. Um, so I won't do that again. I'll just keep it in myself. But it literally means save us now. Like, save us now. And so they're, they're connecting Hosanna to the kingly line of David. And so they're saying, this is the descendant of David we've been waiting for. This is the Davidic king who's coming to save us, who's going to crush Rome under the feet of God. And it's so hard for us as we sit here on the North Shore, like in our comfort to imagine like the situation that they were in. Like they were living under the iron fist of Rome where every aspect of your life is controlled, where you pay absorbent taxes, where your religious convictions are closely controlled, where, quite frankly, you had no voice. And then all of a sudden, all of these messianic promises start unfolding before your eyes who would predict that this king would come and liberate. Like, these people are ready to go to war with Jesus. And not only that, but the Pharisees in this picture as well. They also know the scriptures, and they, they know exactly what is being proclaimed in this moment. And so the Pharisees are kind of freaking out too, because the crowds are proclaiming a new king in the midst of a Roman occupation. Like they know that things are about to get super dicey because the Romans did not play games with sedition. And so what's really sad, though, about the Pharisees in this picture, this is kind of a side note, but what's really sad about the Pharisees is that they weren't interested in what God was doing. Like, they were interested in the status quo. They didn't want to see the boat get rocked. Because not only has Jesus constantly spoken with authority that made the religious leaders uncomfortable, but now the crowds are worshiping him as a king with authority, while Rome is watching this whole deal unfold. And despite, like, all the proof that Jesus furnished them over and over and over again concerning his identity, Notice in verse 39, they addressed Jesus as teacher. They say, not the Messiah, not the king, but teacher, rebuke your disciples. And that gives Jesus the moment that we love Jesus for. He drops one of the most cool verses in all the Bible. I love it. He says, if the people become quiet, then the stones will cry out. Like, I wish I could have seen that. And he's saying this is such a big moment in the program of God. If the people don't worship, seeing this moment come together, then the creation's going to worship. 
which is such a, a picture of the magnitude of this moment. I hope you guys can feel the text, right? Because this is a mega move of God. And so we pick up the story of verse 41 until the end. And it says that when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the people of God, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And verse 44, And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And so it's at this moment that the story takes a very, very different turn, right? It's like, it's like watching a movie where you, you're in the producer's mind and you know exactly where this thing's going, right? You know the end. And then the producer like just radically changes the plot. Like he just changes it. Like I hate those movies where you, you think you know where it's going, but it doesn't go that direction at all. And that's kind of what's happening here because everyone thinks and knows where this whole deal is supposed to go except God who knows the end from the start. Because you'll notice in the text that, that, it, that Jesus, as he's coming down the Mount of Olives and he, and he lays his eyes on Jerusalem, he starts weeping. And these are clearly not tears of joy because I'm, I'm not a Greek major, but the Greek word here communicates that Jesus was bitterly crying. As he comes over the mountain, he starts bitterly crying despite people worshiping him. And it's just like, what's going on? It's like, why are you crying? And we have this incredibly emotionally charged scene where people are worshiping him. Other people are fumingly mad that they're worshiping him. And then the Romans are just watching this whole thing unfold, and Jesus is crying in the middle of the whole thing. Which is obviously, right, make us stop and ask the question, like, what? Church, like what moves our God to bitter tears, right? Like whenever you see a moment in Scripture where the Greek communicates like Jesus was bitterly crying, we should ask ourselves, like what moves our God to bitter tears? And we don't really have to speculate because the text shows us that Jesus was moved to bitter tears because they did not understand the kind of king that he came to be. And this is the crux of the entire text. Jesus knows that they're not receiving the kind of king they wanted. See, they wanted a king on their terms who would fulfill their expectations. And I don't know, sometimes I feel like I do that in my own life, where I view Jesus in a certain way. Like, he's my king, but it's my will, though, at the same time. And those things are incompatible. But back to the text, like, there's a real possibility that some of these same very people who are saying, Hosanna in the highest on Sunday are saying, crucify him on Friday. And the rich irony of this entire story is, is not only did they not understand it, it didn't change any fact that Jesus was the king. Like even though they didn't see him in the right way, Jesus was still the king. And throughout Passion Week, we're going to talk about it next week down there in the field, um, it unfolds like in so many different ways, like full of irony. It's almost chilling. And one of those moments came when Pilate was before Jesus, right? And uh, Pilate knew what he was saying. Like, Pilate understood that he was saying he was a king. So Pilate brought him before him in John 18, 37, and said, So you're a king. And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. And for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So Jesus not only says, Is he a king? But this is the reason that he was born. And then later, really sad and sadistic, we see that the Romans, they, they ran with this idea 
of Jesus being king. And we read, read in John 19 that the soldiers actually, they, they wove a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. And they actually put a purple robe on him and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they mocked him as they slapped him across the face. And I had such a moment this week with the Lord where I was like, man, the same Jesus who is there in John 19 is the same Jesus who's coming back in Revelation 19. Like the same Jesus who wore the crown of thorns is the same Jesus who wears the crown of many diadems. And if the irony couldn't be any more thick when they crucified Jesus, they nailed the plaque above his head, which the Romans did, which would read his crime. And what was his crime? His crime was Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. And so God's sovereign over this whole thing. Like you were crucifying him for the very purpose that he came. Like how sovereign is our God? Like the people are worshiping him as king with the wrong expectations. The Romans are mocking him as the king. And despite all that, from the very beginning, he said, I'm going to ride this donkey that no one should be able to ride unless we're at a rodeo and show you that I'm going to a cross and I'm in control of this entire thing. He's saying, I'm the exact kind of king. Even though you mock me, and even though you don't worship me for the right reasons, I'm still the king. And this is such a huge moment in the program of God that it, it broke Jesus to the core because, because people didn't see it. And so in verses 43 and 44, he, he says that not only is he not coming to liberate them from Rome, but we know from history that the exact opposite took place in AD 70 when the Romans completely leveled Jerusalem and the temple. And Jesus uses really vivid imagery to explain how that was going to take place. Like, they're going to barricade you. You know think about barricades in the ancient world? Not a pretty picture. And they're going to level you and your children within you. And in fact, you can, you can read the Jewish historian Josephus. He wrote about this period in great detail. And he talks about how literally savage this siege was. And, and as I was reading through that this week, I was pretty... It's pretty haunting because Josephus paints this incredibly horrific scene. And it's just crazy to me that this king who rides this donkey, who is completely sovereign, who is in complete control, who has all authority, doesn't stop Rome from completely destroying Israel. Like he could have, he could have done it right there in that moment. But it's at this moment that I remind myself, and maybe I should remind us that 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 Jesus came to rescue them from a much greater enemy than Rome, right? And so the plan was never to rescue them from the horrors of Rome, but the, the reality was the plan to save them from the horrors of God. Like Colossians one twenty one communicates that we were the enemies of God. Romans 2.5 communicates that we were under God's wrath. The entire Mosaic sacrificial system revealed that they deserve judgment and death through the imagery of the slaughtered lamb every year. And so King Jesus doesn't step into our reality to give us a, just a temporary fix, but he wanted to come fix an eternal problem. Because with the people of that day and our day, what we desperately need is peace with God. And so what I want to communicate to us this morning is, is just crazy to think. This is what makes the gospel the gospel, Right? If you don't understand the weightiness of the sin that Jesus hung for, then we'll never understand the gospel. And so he never came to, to free them from the oppression of Rome, but he came to give them peace with God. And I love how this guy, Eric Alexander, sums this up. He says, The real horror of being outside of Christ 
is that there is no shelter from the wrath of God. Or what Paul said in Ephesians, he said, but now, in Christ Jesus, you, us, who were formerly far off, have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Like, is there an amen for that one at all? <laughs> amen. It's okay to talk. It can be a dialogue, sort of. And so, Passion Week and Palm Sunday is like, it's all about God breaking into our reality and establishing a new kind of kingdom with a new kind of king who would not only never fail his people, but he would be a king that would die for his people. Like, I don't know where you put your political hope, but like, that doesn't get much better than that. Because what was between us and God was God's wrath, and he stepped in the gap. And so, as I wrap this up, I just want to bring back the question. Now we see that Jesus is amazing and beautiful and awesome and like totally worthy of being our king. Is he the king of your life? Like, does Jesus call the shots or do you? And this is not like an ethereal question, right? Because we're literally living in God's kingdom because of the things that we just read about. Like, he's a real king who wants the real details of our lives. Because the reality is, like, one day this kingdom's going to be consummated, right? And as I said earlier, we live in this space between the donkey and the white horse. And what's really interesting is that Jesus makes a parable before he goes into Jerusalem to to pull out this exact point because they had a misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God was all about. And so back in Luke chapter 19, verse 11, it'll come up on the screen. Notice what he said. He said, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Just like we've been talking about. They, they thought that he was coming to alleviate the Roman pressure, the oppression, everything that they had put on top of them. And so before he goes in there, he's, he's showing them that this is what's actually going to happen. And so verse 12 and 13. So he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said, Do business with this until I come back. And so church, get the picture. Like God came to establish a kingdom. And he's saying, in the meantime, I want you guys to radically invest in this kingdom with money that doesn't even belong to you. Like he's given you gifts and time and resources. You know what God's given you and he gave it to you to invest in the kingdom. And he goes on with the parable to to talk about three different kinds of people. He talks about those who reject this kingdom those who are indifferent to this kingdom, and those who invest in this kingdom, which is everybody in here, right? And so the parable goes on to reveal that those who reject the kingdom, which are probably a picture of the religious leaders in the first century, and those who reject Jesus afterwards, are actually slaughtered before the king in his presence at the end of the parable. Heavy picture, but a reality. But for the other two groups of people, he also calls them into his presence, and he asks them, like, what did you do? with what I gave you. Like, what did you do with the mina, the, the money? And the parable goes on to mention that one guy made a tenfold investment. Another guy made a fivefold investment. And then it gets to the last guy, and it said that he simply hid his sum of money and made, like, no investment. And then the parable kind of gets awkward because the guy starts to justify himself and tries to get out of it, and then the king just condemns him with his own, world, own words because he basically wastes everything that had been entrusted to him. And so 
I think the parable is obvious, right? Like the king expects an investment in what he's given us. Because we also read in the parable, and this is so neat, I've been tripping out on this all week, is not only does he, is he overjoyed with what they did, but the group of servants who invested, that the text actually communicates that he gives them cities to reign over in his kingdom to the proportion of his faithfulness. Like, I don't know what you do with that, like reigning over 10 cities in the kingdom of God, but there's, there's this crazy connection between the, between the already and the not yet, the faithfulness that we have in between that time, like God's going to reward that in heaven, and it's all over the New Testament. And that's one of the cooler places where he said, hey, guy, that you did the tenfold investment, I give you one mina. You know what? Just go rock those ten cities over there. Like that's our God. He wants to bless us in a way that's beyond what we can imagine. And so the point of the parable comes to the very end, though. The point of the parable, the, usually the point of the parable is always at the end in parables of Jesus. And basically, we see that he takes the one minor from the guy who was completely indifferent to everything Jesus had commanded him. He takes it and gives it to the guy who already had 10. And everyone's like, whoa, how can you do that, Jesus? Like, he's already got 10. Like, why are you going to take his one away? And then Jesus drops the point in verse 26. And I'll read it in the New Living Translation. And to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given but those who do nothing, even what little they have, will be taken away. And so the point of the parable is this. Like God's, he's, the kingdom of God is broken into the world, right? Does anybody believe that this morning? Like the kingdom of God is here, and the kingdom of God is all about momentum. You read all these parables where it grows. It starts real small, but it grows and it grows and it grows. And God uses pockets of people to flourish their gifts into that kingdom. And God is saying like one day, I'm coming back, and you're going to stand in my presence. And even though you've been radically saved, what did you do with what I gave you? And so the reality is God is saying, like, be fired up about the kingdom of God. Like, there is mega big rewards coming in the future if you walk by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, the whole thing's about real people walking with God when it didn't make sense through faith. I don't know, maybe God's calling you today to, to give like a big chunk of your resources away. Or maybe God's saying, hey, I want you to put more time in this, even though it seems so minuscule, man, it's going to bless somebody else, and I'm going to give you a city for it. I don't know, you know, but God's saying like, get fired up for what God is doing in the life of us and in the kingdom. Does that make sense, everybody? Right on, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the sovereign king this morning, that you want to that you want to direct the details of our lives, and God, we just want to submit to that. Like, from the greatest of, in here, of us in here to the least, like, in the worldly standards, God, you see us as your citizens. So we're all the same, and you've given us different gifts, and we just ask, God, that you would show us how to order the details of our lives so that it creates momentum in the kingdom of God. Lord, we, we're desperate for the Spirit to do that in our hearts, and we just Pray as a people, God, that you would reveal yourself more and more as we walk through this season that you're taking us through as a church, that we would truly bring the kingdom of God in the North Shore. Like, that's a tangible thing that you said that we could do. Like, we can inbreak the kingdom of God into this kingdom of darkness that dwells here on the North Shore through the power of Jesus Christ. And so we ask, God, that we would submit to the gifts that you've given us for your purposes 
and that you would get much glory from our simple obedience to the things that you're calling us to right now. So Lord, we glorify and we want to worship you because you're worth it. In Jesus' name, amen.